Today we're going to be in 1 John. As you know, we've been going through the Apostle Paul's works for more than a year now, and now we're switching gears to the uh, disciple John. And we're going to see difference in literary styles between the apostles and amongst the apostles and points of view with no contradiction. So let me give you an example. It's going to be a lot different than what we're used to with the Apostle Paul. So I'll just give you an example from the world. Uh, there's a, a crime scene and the police come to the crime scene and the perpetrator has fled and the police come up to three witnesses and ask them, well, what did he, what did he look like? And the first person uh, is a physical trainer. So he's going to say, well, he was about 5'10", pretty broad shoulders, had a tattoo on his bicep, and he had little legs, right? <laughs> the next witness is going to be a hairstylist, so to speak, right? And um, the hairstylist will, say, will give a description and say, well, he had uh, dark wavy hair and, and long sideburns and a goatee mustache, right? And the third witness may be a... Um, somebody who works in the clothing industry and their description may be just a clothing description he wore a, a gray hooded sweatshirt camouflage shorts uh, black socks and and blue sneakers the bottom line is you still they all describe this one person but in different ways from their point of view so it's really neat how god uses our uniqueness to see things in our our special way and as we jump to john you'll see the difference between uh, Paul's works and John's works. So the background of 1 John, it was written by the Apostle John in the AD 90s to a Christian audience, most likely in Ephesus or what we would know today as the Turkey area. Why? Of course, these uh, Bible authors wrote because God inspired them to write. That's the best reason. Uh, we also see that it was to strengthen the faith of the believers and in addition to that, to encourage them. Most likely a Holy Spirit insight because around this period of time, Emperor Domitian was on the throne and more towards the end of his reign, he became uh, very harsh to the Jews as well as the Christians. So there was coming persecution for the Christians and again, most likely a Holy Spirit insight to the disciple John. The other thing that John had to do was combat false doctrine. When we think of false doctrine and we think of someone who's the vanguard uh, for good doctrine, we think of the Apostle Paul. But every disciple, every follower of God has to combat false doctrine, right? We see that with Jude, John, Peter, uh, Paul. We also saw it with Jesus himself. Now, what was happening at the time was a heresy called Gnosticism. And I'll give you uh, three brief elements of Gnosticism because uh, we'll see the Apostle John refutes that in his letter, okay? Uh, this was something that evolved or morphed into different forms over time. The first point in Gnosticism was they believed that matter was evil, the physical was evil, and the uh, spiritual, of course, is good. And what that does is it leads to the erroneous belief that Jesus didn't come in the flesh, right, because all matter is evil. Of course, that's not true. Uh, this also led to, on one extreme, ascetism which was a, a harsh denial of your own flesh to the point where monks over the years, over the centuries, and even some orders may still do it today, they would beat themselves to supposedly keep their flesh under check, but it totally misses the point. On the other extreme, okay, from that was that you could lead a double life. You could sin with your flesh, you could gratify your flesh. As long as you were thinking spiritual thoughts, you were in good shape. Well, it's not that easy, okay? 
Uh, and we see some of this uh, find its way into extreme Arminianism, uh, which we would call universalism, where in the end everybody goes to heaven anyway. And the second uh, point to the Gnostics was they taught what was called docetism, which where Jesus only appeared to be in human form, he was really a phantom, an apparition. And of course we see John speaking about handling him, that he was real. Again, this is the denial of the incarnation. And you see, if you study with Jehovah Witnesses over amount of time, they have a different idea of Jesus too. They say that he, when he was in the heavenlies with the Father, he was a lesser God. God Almighty was the big God and Jesus was a lesser God. Well, that makes them polytheists. They believe in more than one God. We don't believe that. Uh, they believe that as, when he walked the earth, he was just a man. And then after the resurrection, he became the archangel Michael. So Jesus, in that theology, is really a shapeshifter. He just morphs into different things and, and different periods of time. The third point and last point that I'm going to get into that the Gnostics taught, and there was other things that, uh, again, changed over time, but they believed that uh, you could not achieve Christian perfection without esoteric knowledge. Enlightenment, high-mindedness always trumped faith. So as long as you had that high-mindedness, you didn't have to be a good example. You didn't have to love your neighbor. Uh, you didn't have to live your faith. Uh, as long as the, the wisdom was there, you were in good shape. And this uh, led to a, a form of elitism, where the, the believers, you know, you could have a basic faith. We all have different levels of intelligence, and intelligence doesn't determine our spirituality. We've seen that in 1 Corinthians 1, right? He catches the wise in their craftiness. He, he speaks about those who uh, put themselves above everyone else in that head knowledge. They need to be humbled but not according to this uh, particular heresy. And what would happen was the uh, believers, you know, and you've seen this, you ever run into a believer who maybe has an extreme uh, doctrine and they try to twist you up with their words, they'll throw in, listen, I throw in Greek to bring out the flavor of what God's word is saying, not to deny that what the translator said, but they'll throw in Greek words, they'll throw in big words, and you feel dumb compared to them, and you think, gee, I, maybe I should follow them because I don't know what they know. Well, this happened back then. In 2 Corinthians, the apostle Paul said, beware of those who will lead you away from the simplicity which is in Christ. The gospel message is a simple message. Anybody can grasp it. And he did that on purpose so that, you know, if the whole world decided, they could be saved. And we see this even today in this, uh, this elitism and this, in the, you know, you had your extreme Arminianism, you see this in the extreme Calvinist movement, right? Now what we'll see today and going through this letter is that if we focus on God's word in its entirety, we become inoculated from a lot of these problems. And that's what I love about Calvary Chapel. Calvary Chapel, listen, Calvary's, every church, every de denomination made by men has problems. Okay, Jesus is the only way. But what I do like about the Calvary style is if you stay with us long enough, you will have read the entire Bible, right? And that's important. So we can't just go looking for our pet doctrines and, and skip the, the parts of the scripture we don't like. We eventually will go through this entire book, Mondays, Wednesday nights, etc. And we'll see the Apostle Paul, or the Apostle John, did it the first time, uh, refute some of these ideas. So let's jump in. First John starting with verse 1. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, 
And we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. So the Apostle uh, John gives testimony, first-hand account of what he's witnessed, and he said that which was from the beginning, and he's speaking, of course, about Jesus. But the point here is that Jesus didn't show up in the first century, like he was never there before. Uh, Jesus was there when the beginning started. Read uh, also the Gospel of John. It makes it clear. And actually, if you go back 800 years, uh, the 8th century B.C., the Old Testament prophet Micah, in 5.2, when prophesying about the coming Messiah before he was actually born, says he existed. He prophesies about the coming Messiah. He says his going forths have been from old, from the days of eternity. All right? Now, I'm going to go a little bit into, because, all right, the Apostle John, is, he's very, very, very deep, right? Very, um, he speaks in a lot of absolutes. And he speaks about, if you're walking with the Lord, well, you shouldn't sin. And he said, but if you say you don't sin, you're calling God a liar. So I'm going to make sense of this and go a little bit deeper into the old uh, tenses of the Greek. All right? So in other words, when we say that, that which was from the beginning, was in English is past tense. It happened. In this instance, to be, the verb to be, is used in the Greek in what's called the imperfect tense. It means a continual existence that has always been. So you see more of a richness brought out when you understand the Greek tense. So that's the first one we're going to cover today. John says, we as Christ's followers have seen with our eyes and looked upon him. This is more than just an ocular observation. Uh, in Reinecke's linguistic key to the New Greek New Testament, he elaborates a little more. In the first verb, he says, we have seen with our eyes. It's a perfect tense. And what that means is it's an action that's happened in the past with lasting results. It's a revelation that has been made and the results are continuing, uh, continuously abided. We're abiding in them. And the second verb, he says, that goes in a little bit deeper. He says it's a continuous contemplation of an object. So what does that all mean? It means they didn't just see him. Oh, yeah, we saw Jesus. Oh, yeah, we shook his hand. You know, oh, yeah, we played a wiffle ball with him. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that they lived with him. They worked with him. They scrutinized every single aspect of Jesus' life for at least three plus years. And they could only come up with one conclusion. This truly is God in the flesh. We even know when Jesus was on the cross, the Roman soldier who didn't spend a whole lot of time with him said, this truly was the son of God. You see, it didn't take long to hang out with Jesus to realize that this was no mere man. Everything that surrounded him, uh, the power that went out from him, the miracles that he did, the words were the words literally spoken from God. He was God's mouthpiece. So this is pretty impressive. And I will say this to you. We all better do the same thing. Even when we come in contact with the words on the page, there's power there, right? Romans 10, 17 says these words are regenerative. If you've just come in off the street or you're not a believer or you came in with a family member, today you will be challenged and you will stand before the Lord and he will ask you, well, he won't ask you, he'll already know. 
Are you abiding in him or are you not abiding in him? Because what you believe about Jesus Christ will determine where you spend eternity. And I'm really excited about this book. I have to contain it a little bit. But this is really a revolutionary uh, letter here, as all of God's word is. So you're going to be challenged. In the same verse, he says that Jesus is the word of life. Now, we've heard the logos, the zoe, and the different meanings for it. But uh, in one particular uh, in Greek lexicon, the word of life, the expression that they use to describe Jesus is called the divine expression. The divine expression. Jesus says... If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. How many of us could say that? I wouldn't dare say that. <laughs> I'd have to repent right away before I got struck by a lightning bolt. But if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus is this divine tetrahedron. It has four sides to it. Number one, this word of life. He is God in the flesh. He is God's spoken word. He is the gift of eternal life from God. And we see that. We'll come to that in 1 John 5. And also, he is God's character, and all four of these are inseparable. So how does John explain Jesus in words? Much like the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, heavenly vision, with great care and maybe even a little bit of difficulty. Well, I would ask you this. Are you struggling today? I can't see what's going on behind your eyes. I only know by what you portray to me today. Is your life a little flat lately? You know, study the Son of God. Study the love of God. Leave your problems and the world outside today and just meditate on God's Word. If we aren't living the victorious Christian life, it's because there are immense treasures that we haven't discovered yet. And I'm confident that these letters will transform us individually and corporately as a body. The title that I uh, put on here today was Shared Treasure. The purpose today is to share treasure with you. The Apostle John is sharing treasures with us through his word. And through studying his word, I have that treasure. You know, I've laid hold of that. It's exciting. I want to also share that treasure with you. And that's what we should do with others that we love that maybe don't know the word. Share that treasure because they need it. Verse 3. He says, the word of life was with the Father and was now manifested to us. What that means is that he always was. This, this was a, an awesome situation with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And right now, it's been revealed to us. It's the, it's the divine revelation. John goes on. We declare this to you so that you may partake of this fellowship. Now, for those of you who have um, read the Bible or studied the Bible in some capacity... The word for fellowship is koinonia. And if you look in the, a Greek dictionary, you'll find that it says partnership, sharing, fellowship, um, communion, things of that nature. But there's one word that I haven't heard, or a phrase or a term that's in the Greek dictionary that I really haven't heard used. When I looked at it, it really jumped out at me. The term is called social intercourse. Of course, that word has many means, meanings and we understand usually what goes with that but understand this social intercourse this is something where there's a sharing of each other that goes deeper than sexuality right and i'm convinced that because of sin and because of selfishness 
that we don't even share ourselves with our spouses or with our children in this way. This is a bar that's so high that we look to achieve it, and it's, it's I think, almost impossible on this planet. What do we do in life? We put up our, our, our shields, we put up our force fields, we have our personal space. Don't get within a two-foot radius of me or I'm going to take a step back. Watch people when you get real close to them, right? This koinonia is important. It's, it's, it's this divine situation that John is speaking about. Of course, if we have fellowship with God, then others who have fellowship with God will automatically have this the sharing with us as well. So, and basically he's saying, how could we not share and declare knowing what's been given to us, right? In verse four, it says, and these things we write to you so that your joy may be full. Webster's Dictionary for Joy. Glad feeling, great pleasure, delight, rejoicing, satisfaction, and I would add, you'll know it when you experience it. It's not... It's not happiness. It's not the happy, unhappy trap. I woke up this morning, the sun was shining, I'm happy. Oh no, there's a rain cloud, I'm unhappy. I went to the mailbox, I pulled out a check, didn't know it was coming to me, I'm happy. Behind it was the electric bill, I spent an awful lot this month on air conditioning, I'm unhappy. Don't get caught up in the happy, unhappy trap. This joy supersedes any type of happiness. And this joy is also something that is notwithstanding the trials in our lives. It doesn't mean from this point on everything's going to go smoothly. When we're in fellowship with God, everything's going to be taken care of. No problems, no attacks from the outside or from the inside. That's not what it means. It's a, it's a state of being notwithstanding the trials in our lives. And it's a joy knowing that Jesus sacrificed for me. Just meditate on that. Just take a moment to think about how he thinks of you as an individual, as his child, right? Knowing what the future holds and knowing that it's an honor to serve him. If we serve God grudgingly, then we really don't understand the sacrifice that he made for us. Serving him comes from an emanation and an overflow of knowing what God has done for me, that your joy may be full. Listen, for you, if you're an unbeliever, you just hit a crossroads today. Again, you came in here not knowing what to expect, and bam, you got hit with God's word. You're at a crossroads. Do I continue the life that I was leading, or do I turn and, and, and go in the direction of God? It's something to, very, to consider very important. And for the believer, have you lost your way? Have you been flat lately? Have you bought into the lie to mix the world with your walk. It doesn't work. This, this is just going to get ramped up in chapters 2 and chapters 3. It's going to get a little more hot. Okay, you think it's hot outside? This is going to be smoking, right? Okay. <laughs> Verse 5. Not me, it's the word. This is the measure which we have heard, or the message which we have heard from him, and declare it to you, that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. And if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So this is extremely important to understand on various fronts. Again, the Gnostics taught that it was okay to live in darkness 
to gratify your flesh, any urge that you have, just feed it. And then remain spiritual at the same time because of the dichotomy between the spirit and the body. And John's saying, ah, no. Survey says, no, no good. First off, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Now, in the Greek, this is a double negative. In the English, a double negative, the second negative negates the first negative and it becomes a positive. If I say, I ain't not going to go to work today, that means you're going to go to work. Well, if you say it correctly and, you know, ain't apparently is now in the dictionary. <laughs> but the point is a double negative in the, in the English or is a positive. In the Greek, a double negative, the second negative actually re reinforces the first negative. So understand what's happening here. James 1, let me just build a bigger case here. James 1 tells us that God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. God's not going to be the one. If you see a temptation before you and you're, you're tempted, it didn't come from God. Just understand that. Habakkuk 1.13, the prophet says to God, your eyes are too pure to behold evil. You cannot look on wickedness. Let's look at this from, from a few angles. Why is this important? Well, think of the time period back then. You had your Greek pantheon. You had your Greek array of gods. And then you had your Roman array of gods, the god of beauty, the god of war, the head god, the messenger god, you know, they were all over the place, gods for everything. And if you came from that background, John was trying to help you to understand the real god, those are fake gods, people made that up, the real god that we serve is nothing like those ideas that you made up in your mind. My wife and I took my son to a movie, it was a clean movie, no profanity, no sexual content, pure fantasy, called Clash of the Titans. You know, the cinematography is really wild. But uh, it was me and my wife and I were kind of whispering, probably nobody wanted to sit next to us, because we know the true God. And then you can, you're watching this movie about the, the different gods and their they're mean, they're capricious, they're whimsical, they tempt you, they seduce you, they um, ask you to do things that are impossible to do. Uh, you know, it must have been, if that was really how things were, the world would be in chaos, the universe, because they were all competing with each other, vying for love from the humans. It just was a weird scenario. And John is saying, listen, in God, anything that's negative, anything that's evil, anything that's dark, you can't attribute it to Almighty God. It's not happening. So the question that most people have is, is then, if God doesn't have any evil, how did evil get here? Understand it's a result of man's choices, right? Let me just give you a, a, an example for, uh, for a good result. Uh, babies, you know, God doesn't sprinkle baby dust and they, they, they don't pop up like dandelions, right? Babies are made from choices between men and women, sometimes good choices, sometimes bad choices, but that's how babies come to be. It's amazing how God has set, set us on our way that we can actually make those choices. It's just amazing when you think about it. But um, when there is darkness, it's because there's an absence of light. So in other words, God says, God created everything and said it was good. Well, what happened? Well, our first parents could have done everything that they were told. They had the ability to just trust God and just follow him and just make good choices. But they chose at a certain point to leave God out of the picture and to make their own choices. Whenever you remove God from the equation or go against his good precepts, in his good creation, you, by, by default, come into the realm of producing evil in the world. So it's not God's fault. 
just, I'm going I'm to hit this in a few more ways. Choosing evil or sinning is inevitable but not necessary. And let me explain that. We have choices in life. I could be tempted 10 times today. You know, there's 10 temptations in front of me. I can say to the first one, no. To the second one, no. And go all the way down the line, no, no. But the inevitability is eventually you're going to say yes to one of those things. Right? Because the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no temptation has overcome you except what is common to man. And with that temptation, God will come in and provide a way out of that temptation. And I can tell you, anytime I've ever sinned, nobody forced me to sin. My wife didn't make me do it. My son didn't make me do it. My boss didn't make me do it. Okay? It was out of the own wicked desires of my heart that were married to a temptation. There was a nexus, like the book of James tells us, and once those two come together, that's where sin is conceived. So, we can say no to every sin that comes with us, to us, but the inevitability is that we will say yes to, unfortunately, many of them. Galatians 5.16, Paul says, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. It's a command. You walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. But it can't be done without, without the Lord. Okay, continuing, he says, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Okay, this is the third Greek tense that we're going to come into today. Um, it, the present tense is, it's the, I'm sorry, it's the present tense here, and it indicates a habituality, right? It, it, it indicates a lifestyle, understand? And the word walk in the Greek literally means to tread all around, right? So walk. Are we walking in the light or are we walking in darkness? What it reminds me of is a playground where kids, and it's, it's coincidentally, we have our playground that just went up uh, this week, weekend. Uh, it was a blessing. But kids, when they're on the playground, they tread all around. They're on the swings, they're on the monkey bars, they're on the slides, they're in the clubhouse, they're under the tarp, they're all over the place. They're treading all around. Sometimes, though, adults are like big kids. See, we tread around in playgrounds, too. But the question is, do we tread around in God's playground, where everything that he has called good? Or do we decide, hmm, I like that over there. It's really tempting to me, and I'm going to tread in that playground. Again, it's a choice. But the key is, you can only be in one place at one time, right? So it's something to definitely look, look about, look to. The Gnostics taught that we could live in sin as long as we had knowledge it wasn't a problem. Even today, you've heard many say they could be steeped in the worst type of sin. They could say, I love God. I have my own relationship with God. Please don't judge me. Please don't read the word to me. It's because they're steeped in sin. I'll give you an example. Sometime back, um, we brought a guy in for hitting his wife. Obviously, in New Jersey, you can't do that. So he was brought in. He, he gets uh, uh, processed. He's in the heart of the police station and processing. He starts to preach about this. It's, it's a Christian doctrine, sort of, but it's really on the fringe. And it's me and there's other officers around. I said, listen, you know, bag it, <laughs> zip it. And he's like, well, what are you judging me for? I said, just do yourself a favor and the hearers, just be quiet, all right? Think about why you're here. So the point I'm trying to make is that this guy actually had a form of Gnosticism. He was very educated. He was very learned. But there was problems at home to the point where he actually struck his wife. Okay, so I don't want to hear it. And really, no one's really going to want to hear it. It's, it's a self-deception. 
It's a facade. It's a delusion to think that we can behave any way we want, especially beating up our spouse, and then just preaching, and then people should listen to us and come. It's a breach in fellowship. It means that we've left God behind, right? But I have the knowledge. Well, that's the easy part. Anyone can memorize things. Anybody can read a book. Anyone can spend time and devote to learning. The hard part is walking our faith, right? It's easy to receive it and, and put it up here, but the hard part is for it to go through here and then to actually walk in that, in that faith. And in verse 7, he says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with him. And that's a conditional statement. One thing that's parallel to the English uh, grammatical structure is the Greek. If we do this, then this will happen, else that will happen. Actually, when I started doing computers many years ago, uh, I think they were called subroutines. It's the if-then-else statement. If the, these criteria are met, then this will naturally flow from it. Else, if these criteria are not met, then these will flow from it. Could be good, could be bad. So that's important. I want to read to you Revelation 3, just a few scriptures that I find comfort in. And it just shows you the fellowship that God desires from us. I'll just, there are only one or two verses, so you don't have to turn there, but... In John 14, 23, Jesus answered and said to them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That abiding, that's neat. Listen, there's no place that should be more sacred or safe than our home, right? We, we arrange our furniture the way we want. We take our shoes off. We put our shorts on. We lounge. Home is neat, you know, love to be home. And this is a great picture here. Jesus is saying, when you, you know, the Father and I, we want to come. We want to be a part of you. We want to abide with you, right? Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, and he says this to a church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and open the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Revelation 3.21, to him that overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. That's available to us. So yes, God is very powerful. God is very awesome. If we live a life of rebellion and sin and we have to meet him in the judgment, it isn't going to be pretty. But God gives us the terms, the, the choice. He gives us the terms to make those choices. If we follow him, if we keep his word, if we confess our sins, I love that. Come sit with me on my throne. To me, I think of the old monarchs, the kings had these elaborate thrones that was only there for them. But certainly, if their children were in the presence of the king, who everyone feared in, in, the, uh, in the kingdom, I could see the father going, come over here, sit on my lap. And the kids would just run up to them and sit on his lap. But that's the king's throne. But you're my son. You have that privilege. So this is what is available to every single one of us, to sit on the throne with, with the Lord, to have the Father and the Son make their home with us, and as a believer, to have the Holy Spirit, a part of God, reside inside of us. And these are just a few of many promises in the Scripture. I could just, again, I could just picture God saying, it's good over here, come sit next to me. So, you know, what are we known by? Would a casual observer conclude there's something different about you. When we're really walking in, in, the, um, in the spirit, I'm sure at some point in time, if you've been a believer long enough, someone will say, you know, there's something different about you. That's what we want. 
when we're walking in the spirit and not a facade, not a pretentiousness, but really just, you know, <laughs> sometimes it, they're almost, what's wrong with you? You know, in, in this, in this workplace, everything is bad. Why are you so happy? You know, so I'll take that. What's wrong with you? As long as it's, you know, I'm in joy and, and I'm walking in the spirit and, and uh, you know, that's a good thing. And he says that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. We know that Jesus said while he was on the earth, I have come into this world to die. That was his mission. It was great that he did miracles. It was great that we read about the three people in the scripture uh, that he raised from the dead. That was all good stuff. We loved the teachings, and that was important. But Jesus says, I have come into the world to die. Because there was no sense in raising the dead and doing miracles and teaching us stuff if we're all going to hell. So Jesus became the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice. And that word literally means to appease someone's anger. God is a God of love, but he's also a God of wrath and judgment. And if we thumb our nose in his face and we, we rebel against him and we, we, uh, we mock him and we ridicule him, there will come a day of reckoning. But we choose the terms of how we're going to meet him. So that's important. Verse 8, last few verses. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Okay, so we, we want to walk in the light. We want to practice what we preach, but what's going to happen? We will sin, right? The false teachers in John's day came up with the delusional idea that they didn't sin. Again, this enlightenment was so so great that it, it trumped everything else and you, there was no other things that you had to, to worry about. But the Bible says, Romans tells us, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, the word for com- confess is homo lageo, which is comprised of two words, same word, confess. What does that mean? It means that we say the same word that God says about the sin. So God says to me, Joe, that's destructive. And I say, I agree, that's destructive. Joe, that, that's going to cause you problems down the road. I agree, Lord, that's going to cause me problems down the road. Joe, that is offensive to me. You're right, Lord, that is offensive to you. Homo lageo, we say the same word that God says, and that confess our sins. And I've heard this expounded upon where we should call out our sins by name when we're in the privacy between ourselves and the Lord and we're confessing our sins to God so that we know what we've done, and it brings to mind not just the general, oh, Lord, forgive me for my sins, and then move on. No, it's offensive to him, and let's show the Lord that we think it's offensive too. And, you know, sometimes it could be a long day doing that. (laughs) But call out the sin. Name it. Get it up. Get it out. Vomit it like spoiled food. Why do we vomit spoiled food? Because it'll hurt us. You can tell your stomach knows it starts to turn that something is in there that doesn't belong there. Well, this sin is is equally destructive. It's corrosive. It's like acid. Holding on to that sin will eat through you. It'll eat through your very fiber. And I've talked to believers who are just walking that fence. You know, they just haven't decided to go fully in one way or the other. They have a very nominal faith. Maybe it's a cultural, maybe it's a familial thing. And I say that is going to kill you. I've actually had people come to me quietly and privately and say to me, I feel like I'm going insane. 
And I said, that's not going to leave you until you repent. Get it up, get it out, and, and ask the Lord for forgiveness and move forward. Take, make a decision. Where do you want to walk? Here or here? Which playground? And believe it. And, and I've, I've heard that over and over again, especially from young people. Young people have a difficult time as it is with the hormones and all the temptations that are out there. But then to be riding both fences, at least if you're, if you're totally in sin and you've, you've totally casted God away, well, you may enjoy, gratify your flesh in your life. And maybe you won't feel like you're going nuts, okay? However, you will face God in the judgment. But those who have, you know, they know that this is the right way, God's way is the right way, but they're, they're engaging in this continual behavior and they keep going back and forth. It's enough to make somebody screwy, you know what I'm saying? That's what it does. So over time, it will make us sick and it will kill us in some instances. And he says, all unrighteousness. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness, not some. There are believers or there are those that will, will come to me and say to me, you know, I've just done too much wrong. I've put my finger in God's eye too many times. It's, it's, it's over for me. I can't. Forget about that. That's nonsense. There's nowhere in Scripture. Wherever you are today, whatever you've done, confess it, right? Repent and turn to God and walk with him. He offers that to everyone here. Whose sin is worse than another's sin, really? We don't measure each other's sin. We don't measure cumulative effects of sin. When you come to the cross, that's the power of God. That's the power of Jesus and his sacrifice, that the shedding of his blood is for the remission of all sin, okay? All unrighteousness. So if you're currently involved in something and you feel like maybe you're even addicted, you have some addiction issues, come to the cross, leave it at the cross, and let him worry about where he's going to take you from there. Don't continue in it. You're just hurting yourself. Verse 10. So he says that if we say that we have not sinned, we make him, we make God a liar, and his word is not in us. So look at the progression here. First, we've lied to ourselves. Okay, self-delusional. A lot of people live that way. We've lied to ourselves, but here we've progressed to saying that God is a liar. God's word says something, and we're saying, no, nah, I've never sinned. Now, that, again, in, in that tense, that means that you've said that you've never committed a sin, and of course we know that's ridiculous. Um, all of some, some of us, I mean, all I have to do is probably point to this morning or yesterday, and I can find one, I'm sure, to confess, right? This is important. And it's only by God's word do we as a church body or an individual believer become successful. See, the dishonest and the self-deluded person walking in darkness has broken their fellowship with God, period. I'm amazed that, you know, King David, you know, God said, he's a, a man after my own heart. God is so merciful, especially when you read what David did, right? But David was so steeped in sin, right? He, he, uh, you know, he, had, he, he didn't have enough wives. He, he finds his other woman. He has an adulterous relationship, has the husband killed in battle, covered it up. Nobody will know. Then she gets pregnant. So it's just, it's like almost like a soap opera. It's so bad. And Nathan, God uses Nathan to come to King David face to face. And Nathan tells a story about a man who had plenty of sheep, but he found some poor guy and he took his sheep too and he stole it. And David becomes indignant. He goes, Nathan, who is that man? He's going he's gonna to suffer for this. I'm going to punish him. And Nathan said, David, you are the man. And David was crushed. But he still was able to repent. Isn't that awesome? After what David did, 
he still was able to repent and start walking with the Lord again. Now, it had its consequences. Sin definitely has consequences, but there is always room for repentance. I love that about David. Um, there's hope for me if, if he does that. You know what I'm saying? There's hope for all of us. The good news is no matter where you are in life, you haven't committed the sin or accumulation of sins where you're done. God wants you to come back. He wants you to come back like the prodigal son. So what we see here is an ongoing as well as restored fellowship with God, and that's the treasure, and that makes our joy complete, right? John's speaking. Now, he says, to fulfill uh, your joy, in another translation, it has to fulfill our joy. I would go with our, cumulatively, cumulatively. When we're walking in the light, and then other people start to walk in the light, and they have fellowship with us, that's amazing, right? So, I can't tell you how many times I've seen some who have backslidden and have been like the prodigal son and have come back and they just were hysterical crying, tears streaming down their face. They, they homo logeo, they, they say to God, you know, what I did was wrong, I'm sorry, accept me back. And just what a catharsis, what a cleansing. It all kind of gets, I, I love the, the, the picture of, I think the word is katharizo in the Greek where we get catharsis from, but this picture of a washing, of a cleansing. It's almost like you're just dirty with sin and you go through this, this shower and you just, it washes over you, that forgiveness, and you feel clean again. That's beautiful. So when we look at this letter, and starting with chapter one, again, I'm, I'm having a great time studying it. Uh, I think it's just going to be a blessing to all of us. But we see a few things when we have a relationship with God. Number one. Any pet doctrines go by the wayside. You know, Jesus is saying, if you love me, you'll follow my word. Not just our favorite parts, not just the encouraging parts, but the entirety of God's word. So when we follow the entirety of God's word, we don't have pet doctrines. They don't exist because we're covering the entire counsel of God. What we see too is that, listen, before I became a born-again believer, I had religious duty. And boy, talk about confusing. The, the six days of my, the week were lived like you know, however I wanted to live them. And then the seventh day was my day to kind of do my religious duty. And this wacky cycle just kept starting over and over again. So it kind of takes the religious duty out of it. It takes the denominationalism out of it, you know. It's all about Jesus. It's all about having a relationship with him. So in chapter 1, we see that this fellowship with God and each other in good standing is the treasure that, J that John is sharing with us. And he wants us to have it. And God wants us to have it. And this treasure is priceless, yet free to the receiver. What are you waiting for? Let's pray.